also a genius and has incredible ability when it comes to languages as well as mathematics. He has mastered 10 languages, English, Finnish, French, German, Lithuanian, Esperanto, Spanish, Welsh, and Icelandic. Matter of fact, I watched a documentary where he took the challenge to learn Icelandic in one week. Icelandic is reputed to be one of the most difficult languages in the world. And after that one week, he went on live Icelandic television and did an interview. People were stunned at his fluency. Amazing individual. And when it comes to mathematics, Daniel Tammet doesn't need a calculator. I watched an interviewer sitting there with him and punching numbers into a calculator, and he was asked, what is 27, 27 to the 7th power? which is 27 multiplied by itself seven times, and he rattled off, if, just in case you didn't know this, everybody knows this, right? He rattled off 10,460,353,203. He said the number just appears in his head, and he was writing in one of his books about how numbers are like pictures. Each number has a different texture and feel. He said there are actually beautiful numbers. I didn't know that. And numbers that are not so beautiful. He took the challenge of also memorizing pi. I, I have this on the screen. This is pi. And now it goes on for infinity. Uh, and he sat down for two weeks to memorize pi. And he sat down in a controlled setting for five and a half hours and recited pi, are you ready for this? To the 22,514th place from memory. Took him over five hours to do it. I, I can't imagine having this type of mind. He is a genius known as a savant one of only a few hundred in the world that have this type of ability. Our minds are truly incredible. Aren't we fearfully and wonderfully made? When I get to heaven, I'll be able to do this. Praise God. Amen? Now, today, in order to frame our discussion and our study, I want to go to the geniuses of Jesus' day, the biblical savants, the biblical individuals that knew their Bibles, and they are the Pharisees. Today we use the term Pharisee in a pejorative term, meaning that it's not a compliment. If you called me a Pharisee, I would be offended, deeply offended. It has the connotations and being synonymous with legalism. But in Jesus' day, being called a Pharisee was a compliment, believe it or not. These were the elites of society, the, quote, spiritual people, the people that knew their Bibles, and the individuals that people looked up to. And at a very early age, if you were training to be a Pharisee, this is what you went through. You went through the first stage called Beth Sefer, 
from ages 6 through 10, they would memorize the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Can you imagine that? By the age of 10, they had memorized the entire Torah and completed Beth Sefer. Can you imagine a 10-year-old running around knowing the five books of Moses from memory? The Torah? Amazing. Now, if you mastered this and you were seen as promising, you went to Bet Talmud. Now, the best of the best students would continue on. Bet Talmud meant the house of learning. Roughly from ages 10 through 14, in Bet Talmud, you would memorize the rest of the New Testament. And by the age of 14, they would have memorized Genesis to Malachi, the entire Old Testament. I, I want us to see this. A 14-year-old teenager. Let me see if I can find Malachi in my Bible. This is incredible when you think about the minds of these young people that were to be the religious leaders. That's this entire portion of Scripture. The New Testament hadn't been written in the day. That was the entire Bible. A 14-year-old. In order to be a part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be brilliant. You had to have a mind that was on a level that we find incomprehensible today, and it would make the scholars today seem very, very small in comparison to these individuals. They knew their Bibles. And it would seem that if anyone would be able to recognize the Messiah it would be the Pharisees. It would be the individuals that could just scroll through their mental data bank and go through every messianic prophecy from memory and be able to spot the Messiah. These individuals knew their Bibles. They knew all the messianic prophecies. They had been raised at a very early age and primed for this position, and they came face to face with the Son of God, and did not recognize him. The famed atheist Bertrand Russell was asked the question, what will you do, Mr. Russell, if after you die you find out there is a God? What will you say to him? Bertrand Russell didn't miss a beat, and he said, I will tell him he just did not give me enough evidence. Not enough evidence, Bertrand Russell said. And perhaps the Pharisees of the New Testament could make this same claim that Jesus did not present enough empirical evidence for being the Messiah. And I want to, as we set the stage for our discussion today, to invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 11, verses 38 through 45, as we look at one of the most powerful evidences as to the nature of Jesus having divine characteristics. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 45. This is that story that we're familiar with. Lazarus. And you remember the account, Jesus knows that Lazarus is sick. He doesn't go. Jesus knows that Lazarus is on the brink of death. He still doesn't go. Jesus hears word that Lazarus 
has died. He doesn't go immediately, but he waits not one day, not two days, not three days, but four days before going to Lazarus' tomb. I believe this was to eliminate any doubts as to whether Lazarus was actually dead. So Jesus goes there, and let's pick up in verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead how many days? Four days. Jesus said to her, Did not I say to you that if you believe me, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Now, this was not in private. This was in front of witnesses. There were people there. A man has been dead for four days. Jesus goes there, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And I just imagine in my imagination, it's kind of an echo. And there's a pause. And people look at the tomb. And suddenly, they see movement. And Lazarus, who's bound in grave clothes, starts to shuffle out of the tomb, and there is an audible gasp throughout the witnesses that are there. And when he, had, and he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Now, was this evidence... At the very least, if you were an eyewitness there, you would come to the conclusion that Jesus was unique. This is not ordinary, and that Jesus deserves a fair shake as far as being given a chance to show that He is indeed the Messiah. Look in verse 45. This was enough for many of the people Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, Jesus and believed in him. So to many of the people that were there, this was enough evidence to show that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, and they did indeed believe in him. This was evidence. This was empirical evidence. A man in broad daylight calls out to another man and he is raised to life. Now, I want you to look at the reaction of the Pharisees to this. You pick it up a chapter later. Turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. One chapter later, and you'll see the response of the Pharisees to the empirical evidence that is given in regards to the Messiah. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see who? Lazarus. So people are coming to see this man that has been raised to life, whom he had raised from the dead. But look in verse 10. But the chief priests 
plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in him. Here they are presented with evidence. Lazarus is alive, and what do they endeavor to do? They want to kill the evidence. You see, friends, it's not the availability or the lack of availability of truth. It's the hypocrisy of the search. The issue here was not that the Jews did not have enough evidence. The real issue was that they did not want to see Jesus. And this brings us to an important part of what individuals call epistemology. Now, epistemology is the science or the study of how we know what we know. How we know what we know. Matter of fact, there was this one researcher that brought individuals into a room. He divided them in two, and to half of the group, he showed them this picture. Perhaps you've heard of this study before. Showed them this picture. They all looked at that picture, and he said, I want you to remember this picture. To the other half of the group, he presented this picture. Now, when the two halves of the group were together, he said, do you remember what you saw? The first group saw this picture. The second group saw this picture. And when they were together, he presented them this picture. And he asked them, what do you see? And half of the group said, I see a young woman. The other group said, I see an older woman. Now, what is taking place here is very fascinating because both of them are looking at exactly the same picture, yet arriving at opposite conclusions. One group says, look, I see an old woman. One group says, I see a young woman. And the researcher found that an argument broke out between the two groups as to what they saw. They said, it's preposterous. What's wrong with you? They were looking at the same picture Yet they had something that was implanted in their minds, a presupposition that framed what they saw. In the case of Jesus, the disciples saw the same Christ as the Pharisees, yet they came to totally opposite conclusions, much like this illustration here. Now, there's a lot of discussion now in the Adventist church, if you haven't heard, on this notion of hermeneutics. It's how we interpret Scripture. Needless to say, many individuals are in line with the Enlightenment theory of how we interpret Scripture, and it is that Scripture projects onto us information. We receive passively the text of Scripture and it's kind of like a, a film that takes a picture. It just projects onto us, and we, from a neutral vantage point, interpret the text. This is the Enlightenment framework and the notion of pure reason. So the text projects onto us. We study Scripture. We go to the data, and we arrive at a conclusion based on the data. This is a paradigm that many people naturally assume. 
Yet when you study the Bible and even modern philosophy today, people have come to the conclusion that not only does the text project onto us information, but we also project onto the text presuppositions, biases, our worldview, and can I say this, even our culture skews our interpretation of the text. So when you come to Scripture, not only is the text impacting us, but we are projecting onto the text our worldview, our values, our presuppositions, our biases. All of us come to Scripture with an unconscious lens that views the data that we are exploring. This is something that we cannot avoid. So when we come to the text, all of us have something that is molding and shaping what we are seeing, just like some of the people that viewed that first drawing saw an old woman because they had a presupposition of an older woman. In the same way, when we come to the text, there are certain things that shape how we interpret the text. So here's the question. How do we arrive at the message that God is intending to give us in Scripture? I mean, isn't this a fundamental question? Now, Jesus makes a profound statement when it comes to the science of knowing, and he says it in John chapter 7, verse 17. Notice what he says. He says, he that wills to do his will shall know. Do you catch what Jesus said? He that wills to do his will shall know. I'm so glad that Jesus did not say, he that has an IQ above 140 shall know. I mean, I wouldn't be in that category. Count me out of that. Jesus didn't say, he that has a college degree or above shall know. But when it comes to Scripture, the nature of Scripture is unique in that it is framed in a way so that intent is prior to content. And truthfulness in the heart precedes truth in the natural world. So when we come to the text, the Bible tells us, he that wills to do his will. So when we come to Scripture, if our hearts want to follow God, we will know concerning the doctrine. The Bible is shaped in a way so that a person that has an IQ, let's say, of 220, and yet comes to Scripture with skepticism, will read it and find nothing but contradictions. Yet a person that only has a GED and an IQ of 99 can read Scripture and find salvation and meet Jesus and see wonderful harmony. This is the way that Scripture is written. It is written in a way that our frame, our posture, our intention of how we approach the text shapes how we view Scripture. He that wills to do His will shall know. Jesus is saying that 
our frame of mind, our hearts are revealed when we come to Scripture. I think of this statement in the book Great Controversy. And she says this, Many a portion of Scripture which learned men pronounce a mystery or pass over as unimportant is full of comfort and instruction to him who has been taught in the school of Christ. One reason why many theologians have no clear understanding of God's Word is that they close their eyes to the truths which they do not practice. I want us to think a little bit about that last statement there. It says, one reason why many theologians have no clear understanding of God's Word is because they don't know Greek and Hebrew and the literature that's out there. Notice the frame of this is similar to John 7, 17. It's not intellectual. It's moral. She says that is that they close their eyes to the truths they do not wish to practice. Meaning that there is something about our morality that when we say no to the truths of Scripture in our daily life and practice, that limits us from further understanding. So this this book that we call Scripture is, is shaped in a way that the more truth that we apply to our lives, the more we will understand. And I tell people, if you want to understand the mysteries of Scripture, live, practice, and follow what you already do know. That's the key. John 12, 35, walk in the light, let darkness come upon you. And there are many people out there that are brilliant and have many degrees, many letters behind their name, and yet they are spiritually blind. And the reason is not because of a lack of IQ. It's because of a lack of I will. That's the issue. So when it comes to Scripture, God has leveled the playing field. He has placed it in a way so that everyone, from someone with a third grade education all the way up to the most educated, can come to a grasp of spiritual reality and understanding and saving grace as long as our posture is in the frame of I will, I desire, help me to understand. And this frame helps us in our understanding and in our progress. I've been reading the great controversy and it goes on, it says, as understanding of the Bible truth depends not so much on the power of intellect brought to the search as on the singleness of purpose, the earnest longing after righteousness. So if you come to Scripture and say, Lord, help me to do your will. Not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. That will frame our mindset as we come to the text. I have a picture on the screen of Alvin Plantinga. In my recent research that I've had to do, I've had the privilege of reading this brilliant philosopher, and I'll be honest, much of what I read I do not understand. He is reputed to be 
the greatest philosopher of the last 50 years. Time magazine said that he is the preeminent, most notable Protestant philosopher alive today. And what Alvin Plantinga has done is that through his philosophical arguments, he has placed Christianity in the conversation as a viable option in the academic arena. See, prior to Alvin Plantinga, people thought that philosophically speaking, Christianity was absurd. But because of the work of this man, Christianity has now a respectable place at the table in the academic arena. And as I was reading this man, it was just remarkable, the insights that he was bringing. And this is the latest research that is being brought forth in the field of epistemology, how we know what we know. And I have summarized and distilled three of his main points. And are you ready for this? Here is Alvin Plantinga, brilliant philosopher, And this is his conclusion that has been earth-shattering in the field of epistemology. Here it is, point number one. We can know God if our reasoning faculties are properly functioning. I, I mean, this is remarkable because prior to this, people were saying, look, there is no evidence for God. There's no evidence for God. There's no empirical evidence for God. They were battling it out here. But he has removed the frame of the conversation and saying, you know what? If our minds are functioning the way that God intended it to function, we will assume that God exists. Amen. Have you ever read Genesis chapter 1? It doesn't begin with a huge introduction giving the evidence for God. It just says, in the beginning, God. God is assumed. And so Alvin Plantinga makes a statement. We can know God if our reasoning faculties are properly functioning. And notice this, properly functioning means that they are functioning as God designed them to. And this is his conclusion. The Holy Spirit must repair the ravages of sin, including the cognitive damage so that we can know. This is just changes the whole conversation of epistemology. And Alvin Plantinga's contribution is so unique because it is so in line with Scripture, because you know what Paul said over 2,000 years ago before Alvin Plantinga was even thought of? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them, what? Foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Alvin Plantinga contends that the only way that we can truly perceive is if we have divine intervention. Because because of sin, our minds have been warped, twisted, so that we are not able to rightly perceive, and we need a divine intervention, the Holy Spirit, to help us to perceive the truths of Scripture. All of us are broken. This is the nature of who we are because of sin. We need the Holy Spirit in order to discern. 
This statement, it's a little bit long, but I wanted to put it in its entirety. Testimonies, Volume 5, 704, 705. Without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we shall be continually liable to rest the Scriptures or to misinterpret them. There is much reading of the Bible that is without profit and in many cases is a positive injury. Did you know you can get injured reading the Bible? When the Word of God is opened without reverence, And without prayer, when the thoughts and affections are not fixed upon God or in harmony with His will, the mind is clouded with doubt, and the very study of the Bible, skepticism strengthens. The enemy takes control of the thoughts, and he suggests interpretations that are not correct. The Bible is a spiritual book. And we need a spiritual frame in order to correctly interpret Scripture. It's not like mathematics or calculus or algebra or geometry where we approach it with our mental acumen and come to a conclusion. Our spiritual frame helps us to interpret. There's a whole other element of hermeneutics that is not explored many times, but it is the great controversy perspective. And the Bible tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And this next quotation is startling in Testimonies to Ministers, page 108. And notice what this quotation states. The spirit in which you come to the investigation of the Scripture will determine the character of the assailant at your side. Now, think about the implications of this. If we come to the Scriptures with a certain spirit, a certain mentality, we will have an assistant by our side, and what our intentions are will determine who our assistant is when we come to Scripture. Notice this. Angels from the world of light will be with those who in humility of heart seek, seek for divine guidance. But if the Bible is opened with irreverence, with a feeling of self-sufficiency, if the heart is filled with prejudice, who is beside you? Satan is beside you. And he will set the plain statements of God's Word in a perverted light. Process the implications of this. I know what type of assistant I want by my side in my Bible study in the morning. So the spirit that we come to the text determines which assistant we're picking. And we need to be intentional in this because this is is the great controversy perspective. That there is a whole other arena that we can't see. And when we come to the text and say, Lord, I will to do your will, please help me. We have an angelic assistant. If we come to the text with pride, arrogance, and prejudice, we have a demonic assistant. This is a whole reality, and believe you me, that assistant affects your hermeneutics. It affects what conclusions you come to in your Bible study. It's so vitally important that when we come to the text, we say, Lord, I'm in need of your help. I am nothing. You are everything. Please 
show me your will. And from that frame, angels of heaven are commissioned to help us in this process. The Bible should never be studied without prayer. The Holy Spirit alone can cause us to feel the importance of those things easy to be understood or prevent us from resting truths difficult of comprehension. Prayer implies that we have a need, that we cannot comprehend the text in our own. Jesus himself said these words, John chapter 14, verse 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. The good news is that God is desperately longing to reveal himself through his word. Amen? He's in the business of saving us. So when we come to him and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me through your word, that is a prayer that he will always answer. Change my heart, O oh God. Make it ever true. Reveal yourself to me through your word. This is a divine book. It's a spiritual book that is only spiritually discerned. And it's my prayer that as we come to Scripture each and every day, that we will ask the divine intervention of His Spirit and heavenly angels to mold, to reshape, and to frame our presuppositions so that we will be able to see Jesus in His glory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. For Jesus is the Word made flesh. And Lord, today we want to come to you asking you for divine presuppositions, for divine perspectives when it comes to the text of Scripture. Lord, in our daily Bible study, may you grant us the spirit of humility and the spirit that desires to do your will. Help us, Father, by your grace to invite you into our hearts each and every day. I just want to make a simple appeal today. If you want to say, Lord, I want to see Jesus. But you've said the pure in heart will see God. And Lord, if there's someone here today that wants to say, Lord, change my heart, O oh God. Make it ever true. May I be like you. If someone wants to say that, I want to invite you to raise your hands today and say, Lord, I'm willing. Help me to be willing. Praise God. Praise God. Father, we thank you that this is a request that you never refuse. May you seal each hand with your spirit. Change us. Make us more like you. Shape us as we read scripture. Create in us a clean heart. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.